0: Welcome to the first episode of the Scleroderma Education Podcast, created by the Scleroderma Association of BC. This podcast aims to increase awareness and provide education for medical students, as well as interested patients. Through this series, we hope to help our listeners gain a holistic understanding of scleroderma by listening from both patients and healthcare providers. I'll quickly introduce myself. I'm your host, Valerie Doyon. I'm a third-year UBC medical student and board member of the Scleroderma Association of BC. It's now my pleasure to introduce our two guests for this episode. Dr. Yan Dutz is one of the few physicians in North America who is both a rheumatologist and a dermatologist. He's a senior scientist with the Child and Family Research Institute, and he's an expert in the cutaneous aspects of autoimmune diseases. He works at the Connective Tissue Disease Clinic, also known as the DART Clinic, and is currently head of the UBC Dermatology and Skin Science Department. Roseanne Queen was diagnosed with scleroderma in 1997 and serves as the president of the Scleroderma Association of BC. She is extremely passionate about the cause and dedicated to advocating for fellow patients. Her and her husband fund fundraise over $10,000 annually through the Tandem Bike fundraising campaign. The Scleroderma Association of BC supports patients through advocacy, awareness, support groups, educational seminars, and funding research. So hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming on today. Uh, Now, since this is the first episode, I'll start by giving a general overview of scleroderma and its classification framework. Scleroderma is an autoimmune connective tissue disease with a wide spectrum of involvement. It can be localized or systemic. Localized scleroderma is only skin deep. It includes morphia and linear scleroderma, for example, as a en coup de sabre vertical plaque on the forehead. The term scleroderma typically refers to systemic sclerosis, which is another name for systemic scleroderma. Systemic sclerosis is further divided into limited and diffuse disease, depending on how much skin is involved. Limited cutaneous systemic sclerosis has an equal distribution and spares the skin covered by t-shirts and shorts. It progresses slowly and has less internal organ involvement. Diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis affects the entire body area and has a more aggressive course, as well as more internal organ involvement. Medical students may also have heard of CREST syndrome, which stands for calcinosis, Raynaud's phenomenon, esophageal dysmotility, sclerodactyly, and telangiectasia. Depending on the source, I've seen Crest syndrome reported as an outdated term for limited systemic sclerosis or as a subtype of it. Dr. Dodds, could you please clarify where Crest is currently thought of in the framework for categorizing scleroderma diseases?
1: So, uh, characteristically, um, we view uh, Crest as a term for a clinical syndrome, and you described very nicely all the different aspects of that syndrome, uh, which are essentially a subtype of limited systemic sclerosis. So I would say in terms of classification, that is the the appropriate place to put it. Uh, We tend to shy away from that term because not all patients within that subtype have all of the features of the acronym. And then that becomes confusing. So I would view it as, as, as a clinical subtype where some people can sometimes have the complete form of that subtype and others have the, uh, a rather incomplete form. So, um, maybe that clarifies it a little bit.
2: Oh,
0: totally. Thank you. I,
1: yeah. I'd like to add that, you know, as, as dermatologists, we view scleroderma as, as more of a descriptive term for tight skin rather than a diagnostic term or diagnostic classification. So scleroderma is commonly used, as you said, by by societies, by patients, by physicians, as a diagnosis. Uh, uh, But but we we view that as a a description uh, and as a feature of a number of skin diseases, which you've alluded to, like systemic sclerosis, when when it's widespread, internal involvement, or like uh, morphia when it's when it's more localized to the skin and subcutaneous tissues.
0: Great, thank you so
2: much. Um, and Roseanne, could you please tell us which form of scleroderma you have? I have the limited with some interstitial lung disease, mm-hmm. and I always say crest because I have all of them. So for me and a lot of the people that I talk to, they just say I have crest. So obviously, that now that you've clarified it, it means that they have all of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So interesting. So now, scleroderma has a wide range
0: of symptoms associated with it. But for the first episode, we're solely going to focus on the pathognomonic sign of scleroderma, sclerodactyly. Sclerodactyly translates to hardening of the digits and refers to an inflammatory and an endematous process that leads to collagen deposition and resulting fibrosis in the fingers and toes. Patients with sclerodactyly have stiff, shiny, taut skin on their hands. Dr. Duds, I know that the cause and mechanism isn't fully elucidated yet, but could you please go through the basic pathophysiology of sclerodactyly?
1: Right, so so our understanding of all of these diseases is, is still incomplete. Uh, we, we view... Uh, these disorders as disorders of the immune system. So there are problems of the immune system that result in the release of chemicals commonly, we call them cytokines which change the behavior of cells and result in fibrosis. So there's immune system activation and fibrosis is the end point. We also believe another integral part of this is vascular activation or Uh, vascular inflammation. So systemic sclerosis and limited systemic sclerosis, even uh, localized morphia is also a disease of the blood vessels. And uh, and that's very important because it allows us to separate tightening of the skin from scleroderma uh, type disorders from other causes of tightening of the skin where there may not be involvement of blood vessels. So um, I I think the bringing together those three elements, uh, uh, vascular activation, uh, immune system activation, and mechanisms of fibrosis uh, uh, describes what we know at this point happens in this disease.
0: Thank you. Um, Roseanne, could you please describe sclerodactyly in your own words and share with us what it's like
2: living with sclerodactyly and how it affects your function? Sure. Um, I have uh, very thick, fat fingers. Uh, the skin is, is quite hard and my hands are now curled. So when they usually say, can you put your hands in the shape of the prayer? My hands don't come close to that. Um, and if you can imagine, so I've had to actually have my, ring, my wedding ring size. So if you can imagine curled hands, I I have curled hands, but I consider myself very lucky. Um, For a lot of people, if you took a baseball and you put it in your hand, hold it securely, take the ball out, there are some in our community where their hands are completely uh, in that shape. They can't move them at all. Whereas I'm lucky, my knuckles will move, my wrists, I have a little bit of movement in it. But um, where I find the most frustrating and what uh, really surprised me is when you go to a grocery store before COVID and they gave you change, I would take the change, close my hand and it would all fall out because I can't make a fist. I can't hold anything in the palm of my hand. And I would you totally forget. And I would keep doing this. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't hold anything in the palm of my hand, Um, even soap. When we put soap on our hands you usually put your two hands together and start rubbing well the soap just falls out Mm -hmm. Um, knob door door handles that have knobs on them i can't get my hands around and i don't have the strength to turn it holding a brush uh, toothbrush is really difficult to hold Um, something as simple as holding a knife very 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 difficult to do and again i have some movement in my hands for those, they can't dress themselves, they can't hold a fork, they can't do, do much. So it's pretty, um, when the hands get really hard like that, it's really frustrating and painful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine just how, yeah,
0: how much that affects your life and just your yeah. daily day-to-day tasks.
2: You just don't think of it until you lose that capacity.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I've heard of healthcare staff not believing scleroderma patients saying that Putting IVs in their hands is not possible and extremely painful due to their quote-unquote elephant
2: skin. D- do you have any experiences like this when accessing healthcare? Absolutely. So the first time I, so I was diagnosed in 97, so I went, started all the tests. So I had to go in for a colonoscopy, and they said they had to put an IV in, and I didn't think too much of it, sort of, because I was just starting to get the hard hand. So three tries of an uh, intravenous and I am crying in pain and they, the nurses don't think it's a big deal and I'm literally embarrassed because I'm crying. They finally put the hot towel on. That's not working. So they finally call an IV nurse. She comes in with her ultrasound. I have, they've given me out of them to stop crying and to probably relax. Um, they finally get it in and I'm fine couple of years later, I have to do it again. And I told them, no, you're not putting it in my hand. And the nurse says, well, it has to go in. So we have this back and forth, back and forth. So they finally get the IV nurse in. She comes in, she looks at my hand, she touches my skin and she says, no, we'll put it in your arm. And I hear this time and time again, because I've had scleroderma for so long, I now know what I my body can and cannot do. So I'm vocal. There are so many of our patients first time diagnosed newly diagnosed or just don't have the personality to say anything and so that's what i'm telling them when they ask me you know your body you know what your body can do and they have no clue what it's like to have scleroderma so that is something that i'm constantly advocating is you have to tell them because they just don't know they haven't seen a lot of patients with scleroderma so yeah it's it's a tough one again but hopefully they learn they have one patient that has a problem Hopefully, the next time they see one of us in, something will clue in, I hope.
0: Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And I hope that just by, you know, if we can reach some medical students through this podcast, and hopefully this won't happen as frequently in the future. And, as you know, it's a rare disease, but we want, you know, healthcare providers to be aware of, you know, what, what you guys go through and how we can help you out.
2: Yeah, it's like, think about it for a lot of people. It's like putting a needle in, in a concrete block. It doesn't mm-hmm. go in.
0: Yeah. Wow.
2: Um, So I'd like to switch
0: gears now and go through a case. So, Dr. Dodds, say a 40-year-old female presents with a one-year history of stiffness in her hands. Outside of the basic OPQRST questions, what are the key questions that you would ask on history?
1: Well, stiffness of the hands can be, for many different things, it can be a joint problem or it can be a tendon problem. Or it can be a skin problem. So uh, some of the things that we want to sort out is, uh, is there an association with joint inflammation? So do you have early morning stiffness, uh, which we see more commonly in people that have arthritis because fluid builds up around the joints and the little sacs that protect the joints? Um, So that would be one key question. I would think uh, another key question is, uh, do you loosen up throughout the day? Do you get increased... uh, uh, movement throughout the day uh, and or uh, after activity um, which relates to a gelling phenomenon again uh, around the joints uh, the next important thing is is there a, is this a disease of connective tissues uh, such as that it affects the blood vessels so a key question here is uh, do you ha- <clears throat> and from my point of view is is to find out if the person has Raynaud's phenomenon. So the question there relates to changes in uh, blood flow to the fingers. You know, do your fingers uh, turn blue, turn white uh, and then red? So do you have all three phases of these colors or just one? What are the triggers of that? Is it related to being in the cold? Is it related to vibration exposure? Um, And I guess those two areas Exploring joints and exploring blood vessels are, are really what's important in terms of the, the diagnostic point, right? And then from the other point of view, we always have to think of the patient. And so, so the, the next important question is, you know, how, how impactful is this? And how does this impact your ability to, to work, live and function? Um, uh, because that will guide us also in, in, in therapies. So I think with that, we've gone over a little triad of questions and I think those would be the most important.
0: Awesome, thank you. Those are, those are just a few specific really yeah, yeah. good questions. Awesome. So, so next, what would you look for on the fiscal exam for, for this case?
1: So in, in, in someone who, <clears throat> who has a, a complaint of stiffness of the fingers, first of all, we, we look at the joints uh, we do a physical exam to look at range of motion. Is there a limited range of motion? Is there change in the uh, thickness of the, uh, of the skin or of the tendons that's appreciable? Uh, because there's a, a differential diagnosis for all these things. Um, uh, and we, we do try to elicit what you've already heard about which is asking people to put their hands together in sort of a prayer formation which, and and see if they can bring their palms together flat and their fingers together flat. And not being able to do that is called the prayer sign. So that again, assesses joints, uh, tendons and skin. And then the next important thing is to assess the blood vessels. And the way we do that is using uh, uh, a magnifying uh, implement, either a magnifying glass, Or uh, uh, we use something called a dermoscope, which is a magnifying glass that also has a polarizing filter that allows less light to bounce back and and allows us to actually look at the blood vessels um, at the uh, border of the nail, which we call the proximal nail fold. Um, And looking at the blood vessels there can tell us a lot. In fact, we, we... take that as almost a diagnostic criterion uh, in physical exam of uh, systemic sclerosis. Because it's a disorder of blood vessels, we expect to see abnormalities in the blood vessels to the proximal nail folds. And in the absence of those changes in the blood vessels, it makes the diagnosis uh, of systemic sclerosis, either limited or generalized, uh, less likely.
0: Right. So it's, is it, are you looking for telangiectasias at the nail fold or what? Yeah. So there's a number
1: of things that we look for. Um, basically at the, at the edge of the, the nail or the proximal nail fold, you can see small blood vessels and changes in those blood vessels can be, uh, there's a number of changes that we can see. You can see thickening of the blood vessels. You can see change in the shape of the blood vessels. We call it tortuosity, Um, And we can see loss of blood vessels, which we call uh, capillary fallout. So in in broad terms, those three things are things that we look at. Uh, Thickness, tortuosity, and loss of blood vessels. And uh, by putting those changes together, uh, it can tell us if someone has uh, inflammation or disease of the small vessels. We call microvasculature. Uh, which is a, an important finding in uh, systemic sclerosis. Uh, and it's, it's basically seen only in, in a few diseases. We see it in, in systemic sclerosis, but we also see it in a connective tissue disease called dermatomyositis. And we sometimes see it in the connective tissue disease called uh, systemic lupus erythematosus. So all of those three diseases can have changes to the blood vessels, but the, the combination of changes to the blood vessels, a history of Raynaud's phenomenon and tightening of the skin really pushes you towards the diagnosis of uh, systemic sclerosis.
0: Perfect. And, and just to clarify, like how, how do you actually tell if it's the skin that's tight versus the tendons or the, or the joints in your physical ah, exam? Good question.
1: Well, we, uh, we, you, you can examine the joints to see if there's, if there's swelling around the joints uh you can examine the skin essentially by pinching it uh mm. with your fingers uh, and seeing if it's um uh if it's movable or distensible or not and uh in terms of the tendons uh you can actually see sometimes thickening of the tendon areas uh around the palm in certain disorders like like Dupuytren's contracture which is not systemic sclerosis but has the same findings um uh, and uh, those are the ways that we commonly do it on, on physical exam. I mean, you can use ultrasound to, to, to um, uh, focus in on those changes, but we don't use that clinically very often. That would be more of a research tool. So clinically, just by pinching the skin, examining the joints, examining the tendons, you can differentiate between the different conditions that cause tightening of the skin of the hands or sclerodactyly.
0: Awesome. This is so helpful. <laughs> Thank you. So, so if you notice sclerodactually on, on one of your patient's exams, let's say incidentally, mm-hmm. does that bring scleroderma to the top of your differential or are other mimickers that are more common? Could, you, could uh, you go through a differential diagnosis for this case?
1: Sure. Um, so uh, tight skin can be seen in, in a number of different conditions. Uh, and really what separates your, your diagnostic sort of uh, pathway is uh, the history of Raynaud's and or the presence of these changes to the blood vessels. In the absence of the changes to the blood vessels, you have to think of other causes of of thickening or limitation of motion of the skin. And there, in fact, probably the most common is diabetes. So so diabetes can cause thickening of the connective tissues uh, and can lead to loss of range of motion of the hands. Um, uh, And I would probably say if you look at all comers uh, with loss of range of motion of the hands, that's probably one of the most common causes. Uh, often subtle, not, not as dramatic as in people with, with systemic sclerosis, you know, limited systemic sclerosis, um, but probably based on numbers, the most common. Uh, the, the other things that that, uh, that are not uncommon are um, uh, or or, you know, uh, ten- tenosynovitis, inflammation of the t- of the the tendons, Uh, I would say that's probably second on the list of commonalities. Uh, And then if there is a history of Raynaud's phenomenon, then one would think of um, limited systemic sclerosis as next. So I put that in the order. There, there There are many other conditions that cause tightening of the skin, but not characteristically of the hands, all right? When we're going down with the hands, still one of the other things is eosinophilic fasciitis, which affects deep tissues in the forearms and the lower legs can also affect the hands and result in a prayer sign, but is very uncommon, even more uncommon than, than systemic sclerosis of the limited variety. Um, So I think we've gone through three or four of the things that one thinks of in the hands. uh, And, and at another time, we can talk about other things that cause tightening of the skin elsewhere in the body, where usually it's things that are deep being deep, deposited in the skin and make it tight. So we get that after drugs, certain drugs, gliomycin for example, uh, doxytaxil sometimes. Uh, you get that in uh, situations where you get deposits of immune substances like in sclerodema. These are all uh, not very common, but things that we think of uh, as dermatologists when we see patches of tight skin
0: that's so interesting i I didn't realize that diabetes could cause kind of a tightening of the skin that's not something that's traditionally taught in medical that's the most
1: common form of I mean, we we see diabetes presenting as something else but yeah it it does cause changes in the skin over the long term
0: right interesting okay and and in the uh, early inflammatory part of the disease the hands will typically be edematous before the fibrosis occurs and that characteristic thick taut shiny skin forms. Mm-hmm. Dr. Nutz, what typically occurs if patients present at this early stage?
1: So um, the, the, the puffy hands is seen uh, most commonly in people with limited systemic sclerosis or, or the crest form. Um, people with uh, diffuse systemic sclerosis don't tend to get that puffy face. So uh, it does help us in the, in, in the diagnostic classification of the disease. So people with the puffy hands tend to have more, more limited systemic involvement. Um, and it's uh, often uh, talked of as, as an early uh, phase of the disease, although some people have persistent puffy hands. Um, we Usually it gives us uh, an early clue to something going on. And that early clue uh, should prompt us to think about treating those patients. So, mm-hmm. so you know, people that have these, the, the puffy hands and have blood vessel changes, then we would, we would go on and say, well, you likely have limited systemic sclerosis. We can actually increase our diagnostic um, certainty by doing blood tests in that there are certain uh, called autoantibodies, certain things in the blood tests that increase our diagnostic uh, uh, assurance uh, and then we would it would give us an opportunity to start treatment. And, you know, we can, we can talk about treatment maybe a little later, but um, the, the the next phase is that tightening phase. Uh, and then the third phase, I think, is important to be aware of as well, uh, and is that although systemic sclerosis is an immune condition that that often starts in the skin, it doesn't only involve the skin, it can involve other organs. And paradoxically, the skin often starts to improve after worsening for, for a, a period of time. So people get tightness, get swelling, then tightness, and uh, a good fraction of people get improvement in that tightness uh, over a period of time. And it's, it's, it's that realization that's actually made clinical studies a little more difficult because the, the tightness isn't invariably fixed. And I guess that offers us as people that treat the disease some hope, because if naturally some people get less tight, if we can figure out the ins and outs of that, that, that gives us hope that we can figure out ways of decreasing the tightness in in people that have tight skin for a long time.
0: Right, right. And, and Roseanne, I think you mentioned that this, this has happened to you because you've had, you've had scleroderma for like 25 years. Can you tell us a little bit more?
2: What I find interesting is if you have, so a lot of the people will have Raynaud's first, like Dr. Dutz alluded to, Um, and we're all so different, but what's interesting is it's a lot harder to get diagnosed when it's internal. So if somebody comes in and says, I'm having trouble breathing, I have acid reflux, it's a lot harder. They don't, I presume, you just don't automatically go, oh, they must have scleroderma, let's test for it. So I think the diagnosis is something like five to seven years to get diagnosed with scleroderma. But the people that have Raynaud's, I think, get diagnosed faster. I would think, is that correct, Dr. Dobs?
1: Yeah, I think, I think there, there, there are, there's a subset of people that, that, that have something that we call scleroderma sine scleroderma. Which, which, which means tight skin without tight skin. <laughs> that those are the ones that are, that are frankly, as you just say, the, the hardest to diagnose. Um, and, and, and the same goes with uh, the absence of very prominent Raynaud's phenomenon. I mean, it, without any Raynaud's phenomenon or any blood vessel changes, we would, we would be quite circumspect about the diagnosis, but some people just have very subtle findings in both of those arenas. And that makes the classification and the diagnosis much more difficult. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was lucky because I was diagnosed, I had Raynaud's in 92. And Mm -hmm. then in 97, I was diagnosed with the scleroderma. But listening to you talk and what I've learned over the years is I probably had the scleroderma earlier because my fingers were pretty swollen and pretty tight. Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, and Rosanne, you've spoken to hundreds of patients with scleroderma. Have you noticed any other kind of patterns or themes in terms of what led to their diagnosis or or barriers that they have to getting their their final diagnosis?
2: Um, I would say, again, um, having the Raynaud's is a lot easier. And most of us, the people that I've talked to have the Raynaud's first. Um, The people that have had the internal, it's taken a lot longer and are a lot sicker. Uh, But for the barriers, um, it's interesting, I was just talking to Tiashi, who's also a board member, and she lived in a small town. And the people that live in small towns, it's a lot harder to get diagnosed because you go to your GP and you could say, I have acid reflux or, you know, my hands are going white. um, And it takes them a lot longer to get referred because they don't necessarily have a dermatologist or rheumatologist in the area. So it means either going up to Prince George or coming down to Vancouver not easy to do when you're sick it's also you know you don't want to jump in your car and, and do that kind of traveling so being sick in a small town I think is really really difficult to get that diagnosis quickly so they can stop the progression of the disease so that I would be it's the biggest barrier that we we've heard
0: right right so rural medicine challenges in general very much so mm-hmm. okay thank you um, and now jumping back, kind of back to our case here, uh, Dr. Dots, mm-hmm. what is the role of skin biopsy and lab work in making the diagnosis? Is, is it mostly a clinical diagnosis? And on the flip side, if scleroderma is unlikely, can a negative ANA effectively roll out scleroderma?
1: Um, well, it, if we talk about systemic sclerosis, the disease, um, it would be very uncommon to have the disease, if not, all, you know, uh, unthinkable to have the disease without uh, a attendant changes in either blood vessels or uh, a blood test that shows autoantibodies that are consistent with that diagnosis. So I would say, in the absence of of those specific antibodies, which are so specific that not having them uh, really casts doubt over over that diagnosis, and we'd have to look for other other causes. Now, there are a number of different autoantibodies, and it's important that that all of them be looked at. Usually we do a screening in terms of autoantibodies for something called anti-nuclear antibodies. uh, And and often it's positive on that screening. And then we look more specifically at the kinds of autoantibodies. And there's different kinds depending on on the kind of systemic sclerosis. uh, so from, in, in terms of testing, uh, you asked about skin biopsy. I, I should say that, I, you know, in terms of skin tightness, the, bio, the diagnosis is really clinical. So it's uh, skin tightness is something that we appreciate by looking at the skin, by looking at its shininess, its ability to move uh, from the underlying structures uh, and uh, a skin biopsy uh, is not often helpful uh, in securing the diagnosis. A biopsy can show fibrosis, which is damage and increased f- uh, fibrous tissue deposition. Uh, but because that's often an end result of different kinds of inflammation, it doesn't help nail the diagnosis. It just tells us that fibrosis is there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, an, a common example is the disorder morphia which is localized scleroderma, patches of tight skin. If you you biopsy uh, one of those patches of tight skin, the pathologist may call it scleroderma, but that may actually confuse the issue because it just tells you that there's fibrosis there. It doesn't tell you if you have a systemic disease like systemic sclerosis or a localized disease. And the difference is really clinical. Okay, so we you. shy away from biopsies, frankly.
2: Okay, perfect.
1: I, as I imagine patients do, they're not keen on. Yeah, them,
2: yeah, I'm not signing up for you to take a big chunk out of my skin. There
1: you go. Yeah. Now I, I should, I should, I should preface that, uh, or or qualify that comment you just heard, that just because you have fibrous changes in your skin doesn't mean your skin can't heal, doesn't heal, or shouldn't heal. So, uh, patients with systemic sclerosis can uh, uh, very well undergo surgery that often improves their quality of life uh, by plastic surgeons, for example. So by, by skilled and, and dedicated people, uh, specific surgical interventions to this disease are actually not necessarily a bad thing. It can be helpful for the quality of life of the patient. So that includes removing calcium deposits which we may talk about at another date um, or, uh, or doing surgeries to, to increase functionality uh, in, in, in the digits and in the limbs. Uh, and the same thing goes for localized sclerodermomorphia. Some people have uh, isolated plaques that, that cause them distress because of where they are and how they interfere with their ability to function and, and, and surgically removing them is not something that is unheard of it's it, it can actually be done and can actually help them
0: mm-hmm. right okay but I don't want to dive too much into no, no interventions because no, no. we fine. will we'll have another we'll podcast another episode on that <laughs> sure. great um and Roseanne how did you feel when you got your diagnosis of scleroderma like were you afraid disheartened or
2: relieved to have gone an answer no I was actually shocked because I went in there with I got thick skin on my thumb my hands are swollen my face is getting tight and he says and literally he said you have scleroderma you could be dead in five years there is no cure and if things get worse we will make you as comfortable as you can." and all I and and yes I can remember it was 24 years ago almost 25 and I can remember it like yesterday because I didn't even know what it was and there was no conversation And, of course, by that time in, I wasn't listening to a word he said. So I got him to write the disease down. I walked out of there, got home, and we didn't really have computers. Got someone to look it up. It says you're going to die. Ignored that. Had a good cry. Talked to our family. And then common sense went in. And my husband saying, well, you could walk across the street at a crosswalk, get hit by a car. You could be in a car accident, you could slip and fall on the ice and, you know, break your neck kind of thing. So that's how I took all that information was like, okay, right now I'm okay. And I, and I don't worry about the what ifs. My diagnosis has gotten worse. Things have gotten worse. But I have never done the what if, what if, because that could be any of us. But yeah, one thing I would tell your medical students, two things is be careful when you give the diagnosis because you don't hear half of what's being told especially when they say you could die and there's no cure and and the second thing is if you know you're going to give a diagnosis like that tell them to bring somebody in to listen to what's happening because let me tell you by that point he could have told me everything about scleroderma and I wouldn't heard a word Mm. so yeah shock and that's how when I've talked to a lot of people how they got their diagnosis, the bedside manner was pretty poor. Especially when you don't even know how to say it, you've never heard of it before. So now that I look back, I laugh. But I wasn't laughing at the beginning. And I wanted to go back to that doctor 20 years later and say, really, this is how you tell somebody this. So yeah, it was interesting, to say the least. And I'm sure there's lots of good doctors that don't do that. But I'm sure there's still some old school doctors that I
1: haven't worked yet i think the the the, the pearl here that, that you're giving us which is which is very useful is that whenever you're you're communicating uh, a potentially life-altering diagnosis or finding to a patient um, it's really helpful to involve that patient's support group or support system because uh that that's that's what's really important for the patient, uh, and as you said, the you know the, the 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 doors close as soon as you hear something bad, and 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 to have someone there to 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 take that in is really helpful.
0: Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you both so much. Um, if it's okay, I'd like to jump back kind of into the treatment. Uh, sclerodactyly. And I'll just start by saying one of the f- reasons I find scleroderma interesting is because there's all sorts of creams and procedures to, to firm skin and increase collagen. But for scleroderma patients, wrinkles are not the problem. <laughs> um, in fact, they should be avoiding anti-aging skincare that can increase collagen production. Uh, smoking cessation and avoiding vasoconstrictive drugs like decongestionants and amphetamines is really important as well. Uh, Roseanne have you found anything else helpful like I've read about hot wax baths and things like that um, as a non-pharmacological management for your
2: sclerodactivity lots of cream lots of lotions Um, the lotions I use that have been referred to by my rheumatologist are creams with urea and um, ceramides Mm -hmm. Um, so I use that like crazy and with all this uh, washing of the hands the hands are so dry so again We go through a lot of that, and um, exercise. I do hand exercises every day, even though I don't have total movement in some of my fingers. I'm still doing the exercises. It's the use it or or lose it. Mm -hmm. So that's I don't. That's basically what I do to keep my hands right. So moisturization and physio, basically. Yep, that's it. Okay, great.
0: And now more on the pharmacological side of things. Um, immunomodulators and biologics are kind of beyond the scope of, of this podcast, but I'd like to briefly touch on them as a whole. Um, I've read that, unfortunately, we don't have solid evidence that systemic immunomodulators can prevent or reverse fibrosis and sclerodactyly. Dr. Dutz, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, um, we, we, we have strategies that are local and systemic, right? You heard a little bit from Roseanne about about local strategies. So moisturizing is important, why? Because you also lose the glands in the skin as part of the fibrosis, the glands that normally make natural lubricants and that allow you to to regulate your skin in terms of temperature and things. So so that's one reason moisturizers are really important because you wanna prevent skin breakdown which could lead to infection, which is a a common problem later on in systemic sclerosis uh, with, with the hands uh, and with the skin in general. Um, In terms of the root cause and how we can change that. Well, uh, there, there are studies um, that show that the use of drugs that change the immune system can provide some benefit. Uh, The problem with, many of the studies is that there's this confounder that in some people, the skin gets better already. So it means you have to use larger groups of people. And this is not a common disease to start with. So most of the studies show trends to improvement, but not at this point, statistically robust changes uh, with regards to improvement.
2: Mm.
1: Having said that, when you have five or six or more than one or two at least studies that all show trends in the same direction, yes, we then take the fact that there's a good likelihood that these drugs do provide some benefit. And that provides the, the, the rationale or the, the, the bedrock for us using drugs that affect the immune system in this disease. And some of the drugs that we use are are, are drugs like methotrexate, which which we use in many inflammatory diseases. And we've learned to use very safely and very uh, effectively in in other diseases. And they have some effect in this. So I would say that that's probably the drug we we use most commonly. The second most common drug is now called mycophenolate mofetil, which, which changes antibody production and immune stimulation. And if those drugs don't work, we have other drugs that we use less commonly, uh, uh, where there is maybe less rebu- less multiplicity of studies, but where there's still some evidence that there may be some benefit. Uh, and those include drugs that, that alter I- antibodies in the in the in the, in, the, in the body, um, like rituximab or intravenous immunoglobulin. So uh, or uh, drugs that that address the immune system more drastically, like something called cyclophosphamide. So we have a number of, we have a a series of drugs. Uh, At this point, uh, we're we're not at the the state where um, we can say uh, we have robust evidence, but we're at the state where uh, we can present the patient with a balance of uh, positive and negatives for each of these drugs. And together we can uh, decide on 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 a treatment strategy that uh, that that will offer uh, a, a reasonable chance for for improvement and control of disease.
0: Okay, so what I'm hearing is perhaps if there was a meta analysis of all of these studies, we could perhaps see a statistically significant.
1: That, that's possible, you know. But to do a robust meta analysis, you need different you need yeah. systems. We, we have groups that are doing that kind of investigation. We're, we're still looking for things that you know that, that basically give the home run we don't ha- we don't have that but it doesn't mean that we don't have hope and we don't have uh strategies uh where there is evidence for for some effect right mm-hmm. um and uh in terms of removing collagen you said you know we as 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 young people we spend our time put uh you know looking for strategies to improve our collagen and, and keep it healthy uh we do have a strategy that does remove collagen and that's uh, and that's ultraviolet light. So ultraviolet light A, which is long wave ultraviolet light, we know uh, uh, causes collagen breakdown. And, and that's why we wrinkle as we get older. Uh, and, and, and some people have looked at, at using that to try to break down some of the collagen uh, in, in people with these disorders. Again, not enough studies for us to know for sure. But, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at at many different ways of trying to improve the the lives of patients.
0: That's really interesting. Okay. Thank you. Um, I think we're going to, we're pretty close to wrapping up here. Um, Is there any other points uh, from either of you that you feel that we haven't really had a chance to touch upon, or you'd like to emphasize?
2: No, I'm good.
1: I'd like to say just that, One of the reasons I went into rheumatology uh, is that we uh, a lot of the disorders that we see as rheumatologists uh, affect the body in many different ways. And because of that, uh, you really require a a whole team to help the patient. Uh, And I would say scleroderma is one of those conditions where it's really important to have a whole team because it... It's not just the physician, it's not just the patient, uh, it's the physiotherapist, it's the dentist, it's um, uh, the occupational therapist. It's really, uh, it requires uh, skills from many, many people to, to, to improve the lives of the patients as much as possible. And you know that's what I've always found uh, enjoyable and, and, and thrilling about rheumatology. Uh, and, uh, and why I, I, I'm still part of that community.
2: Right. I would like to add to that. And it's really great. Like, I go to the scleroderma clinic, but it's really great when the respirologist, the gastrologist, the rheumatologist all talk to each other. And, and he's got a really good point because I see a massage therapist, I see a chiropractor, I see a physio, I have a whole group of people that keep me healthy. And I'm really, uh, I'm really lucky uh, to have that group of people behind me, because it sure makes a difference. And, and I really appreciate, Valerie, your uh, interest, because looking at medical students that are wanting to learn, that's the hope for our community. You know, it's the hope that we will get diagnosed faster. And, you know, with the researchers, the, the, the fundraising that we do, um, it gives us great hope that, that um, there will someday be a cure or stop the progression and just keep us healthy. Because obviously my doctors and everybody that's helped me has kept me going. So 24 years later, I'm one of the lucky ones. Right.
0: And that's one of the goals of this podcast is just to try to interview as many you know, specialists from different disciplines to hopefully get, you know, the whole picture and as broad of a, yeah, picture of of scleroderma and and how we can help. So yeah, great, thank you so much. We're gonna, we'll wrap up here. Uh, I think one of the biggest pearls that I've taken away is just the importance of continuity of care for these multi-system disorders that, you know, are, are involving so many different organs. And so the collaboration of multiple healthcare professionals is so key so yeah thank you again so much both for your time your teaching and your insight on this disease
1: you're welcome <laughs> oh, yeah thank you yeah thank thanks cheers bye-bye Bye.